You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Crispin Sarwell, good to see you again. Good to be seen, Dan. How are you? Welcome to everyone in the Sophia audience, bloggingheads.tv, meaningoflife.tv. This is the Sophia program available on streaming video and audio podcast. Uh, my name is Daniel Kaufman. I'm a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University. I'm the host. I also uh, publish a uh, online magazine called The Electric Agora. I am joined here by my uh, much-loved and uh, uh, and partner of powerful intellect, Kristen Sar- Chris- Crispin Sartwell, author of most recently Entanglements, a system of philosophy about which we did a number of dialogues that I recommend everyone watch because the book YouTube dialogues are excellent. And also professor at Dickinson college. Um, associate professor, professor. Um, now before we get started, everybody's just, you know, going to want to know, give us the 32nd about what's going on with you at you, with you and at Dickinson with Corona, what's going to happen in the fall. As far as you know, what's going on in your world. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think it's very atypical, but uh, I've been, we've been uh, in this extremely rural location, York Springs, Pennsylvania, where I live. Uh, my girlfriend, I've never really lived with my girlfriend, Jane Irish, before, but we've been living together 24 hours a day for the last couple of you've months. Co- you've quarantined together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she, I mean, she lives in Philly, but uh, she's out here now. Uh, I'd but, rather be where you are than Philly, right? Yeah. Um, situation. Yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah. I miss like a little bit of city life though. I, I guess it hasn't really affected me. Like uh, it's not like a bunch of people I know have contracted it or something like that. One of my colleagues, I think did have it though. Uh, Oh, it's on campus. Uh, yeah, we've had, we, I think we had a couple cases on campus actually. Um, she's not sure whether she had it, but she had all the symptoms of it. Uh, you know, but anyway, so I'm teaching, I've been teaching on zoom. I'm just grading out for the semester, uh, today and tomorrow, I guess. Um, what are they saying about the fall? They're just, all they're doing is scenario planning, you know, like several different scenarios. I think it seems more and more likely that we're not going to be able to bring everybody back simultaneously. That's a completely residential campus though, right? Yeah. Yeah, a couple thousand people all all on campus simultaneously. Um, so I'm not sure. I mean, you know, it might be all distance. It might be half the people come, come back. We might separate into quarters. We I don't know, man. So have you seen your enrollments? Yeah. So mine are full. Yeah, you know, I it's not my, that my classes are empty. But I, I'm I know wondering, I mean, are, I, at first I thought, listen, half the people just aren't going to come back at all. Yeah. But now it looks like, at least from the enrollments, that they are, unless maybe people are just sort of enrolling and just saying, you know, without committing, pers- you know, in, in here, you know what I mean? I think so. Like, yeah, I mean, we just, it's it's routine to enroll in next semester's classes or whatever, you know, but I, I've heard from several students that they don't think they're coming back. I, I had a couple students who were trapped on campus. And uh, even some that haven't been able to leave yet. Were they allowed to stay there over the break? Uh, yeah, they were allowed to stay there all this time. This happened in most campuses. Like, yeah, that's that, that's. I think that's probably a good thing, don't you think? I mean, yeah, but they're going. They're, why send a student back into a hot zone when you're not in one right now? Right? I mean, 
Right. Or like back to China in March or whatever. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, I'm not saying it's not horrible and hard, right. but it's the they're right trying, thing to do to let them stay. It seems to me. Right. But they're kind of, yes, but they're kind of going mental though too. Yeah, of course. Of yeah. Course. So people are in different situations, man, but it's, yeah. Yeah. There's no talk of furloughing or anything because you know, that's starting to happen at places. Yeah. There's hints, but no, uh, no declarations that, there's going to be any furloughs or things. Yeah. We, can't, we can't survive more than another semester or two though. You know, is we, the school, is the school primarily financed on an endowment? Like how does it, or is it almost, is it all tuition? It's primarily tuition. There is an endowment, but it's not that significant. Uh, you know, so yeah, we're tuition driven. So if we lo- lose, you know, oh, 20% of our students, it collapses or whatever. Oh, Crispin. So I don't know. We'll do this right. How's how's it uh, Missouri, in Missouri? Look, so in Kansas City and St. Louis are the biggest cities. They got hit the hardest. We're down in the south southwest corner. Knock on wood, so far we really have been not hit very hard at all. Yeah. Um. Um. I don't think we've been hit worse more than a really bad flu flu, flu season here. Yeah. Um. We've already started a partial un- unlocking. But I have to say that they've, the county has been extremely cautious. I mean, you know, oh. you get this picture that in the, the really red parts of the country, people are revolting and the, and the, and the, the people aren't. We actually locked down really early. Hmm. Uh, I don't know what it is about my area in particular because it is very right wing. Mm-hmm. But we have been incredibly careful. And um, they did. Maybe it's county leadership. I don't know what it is. But I, I've been impressed. Yeah. They locked down early. And the reopening seems to me to be quite sensible the way it's being done. That's good. Um, and, you know, one good thing about at least some kinds of right-wing places is that, is that people are very obedient. And, um, you know... Some you know, kind of right-wing places. And in the, well, we're less the libertarian right-wing and more yeah. the sort of the, the Christian coalition sort of right-wing. And so, you know, people do... They do what they're told, right? I mean, they do... And in this case, you know, in other words, I'm not going to supermarkets and seeing people be jerks. Yeah. Yeah, neither here. They're standing on the six-foot dots on the floor, and they're not fucking around with it. And 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 so I, I'm hopeful, at least, that we, we've been spared. Um, now, of course, as everybody knows, my very old parents live in New York and live in Nassau County, which is in Long Island, which is like ground zero, the worst place you could possibly be. And... Um, they're all right so far, but not only could they get it any minute because they have help that has to come in the house. They can't take care of themselves. And where do you think the help lives in fucking Queens? Right. Yeah. Which is like the Uber worst place in the world to be. And then on top of it, their age is such that the isolation by itself yeah. is, is, is just, they're deteriorating. My mother's dementia. I mean, is just like, so um, I wish I could tell you that, you know, our well-being here is giving me great peace of mind, but I'm actually worried sick. Yeah. Well, I'm worried about my 95-year-old mother, even though she lives very she? rural. She's in rural Virginia. But See, the problem there is you have fewer cases, but there's right. no fucking infrastructure. Right, exactly. So if you they get it, they're screwed. Like, yeah, yeah. 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 How she, far is that? What's that? How far is that? Uh, for me, it's about three hours. And does she take care of herself? Basically, 
she has some help and stuff, but uh, so that's been a problem too. Did you uh, did you try originally to get her to quarantine with you when this first started, or was that no, not possible? Well, actually, we were traveling when this really hit, and we just got home or whatever uh, in the middle of the when they were shutting down. Oh God, we were in New York. Oh, for God's and, sake! And so I wasn't going to tell my mom to come. No, 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 no. We were no, no, we were, no, no. We were trying to shelter. No, no, we were trying to isolate for fourteen days, or whatever. You know. Uh, oh my God! What an irony! You were in New York right when this hit. What was yeah. it? A conference? Uh, no, we went to the Armory Show, uh, the art, the big art fair. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. And Jane uh, had some work in there and stuff. All right. Well, what we are going to talk about today has nothing to do with this whatsoever. That might be refreshing. It's, is completely inconsequential, but is the sort of inconsequential thing that philosophers spend their whole lives talking about. Um, the, the universe, man, this isn't inconsequential. What exists? This is all that matters. Totally inconsequential. Just the oh, same yeah. way it doesn't matter whether Barclay's right or not about you still going to drink your fucking coffee, right? Um, <laughs> But that may be part of what we argue about. I mean, you know, I think part of our difference is that you attribute a kind of significance to some of these things, whereas to me, they're almost like just differences in the way you decorate your windows, right? Um, 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 but so, so what we're going to talk about, Crispin, I don't know how this has affected you, but this has, or I have to say one thing that has, has happened is I've become incredibly productive. Okay. Um, I'm finding myself able to focus on this kind of work, maybe because it's a distraction. Yeah. I've been doing some pretty technical analytic philosophy, and I've actually decided to publish a book in installments on my magazine um, devoted to establishing a fundamental metaphysics. Um, and um, so I'm calling them these installments prolegomena, in order to be highfalutin and, yeah. and self-important. Um, well, whenever I think of the term metaphysics, I think of the term prolegomena. Do you really? Yeah, yeah of course, you know. Because you never want to read the whole fucking metaphysics. The prolegomena is enough, right? I mean, it's like, Thanks, know, once you read the prolegomena, do you really need to read the critique of pure reason after that? I mean, it's... Right. Hopefully not. Um, well, that's exciting, Dan. That's, that's, that's very ambitious and stuff. So, yes, yeah, so I'm doing these prolegomena to what I'm calling a pluralist metaphysics. And um, because you're really the only person I engage with, maybe other than Massimo, who does substantial work in technical analytic philosophy, you've written an entire book that includes this plus a whole bunch of other stuff. So I actually kind of wanted to engage with you on it. I kind of did solicit you to do this and I appreciate yeah. you doing it. Um, um, so we're going to, I've done three installments already and I think there's enough there to talk about. So we're going to start banging on about it. And I hope that we will maybe do one or two more as the, as it continues to develop. Um, okay. um, and, and Great. I'd love to finish. I, I've really enjoyed them so far and I, I'm getting a lot out of them. They're really making me think. So let me ask you, do you want me to sort of just sort of give the, the, the elevator presentation of what the point of this is, what this is about, and then you can start interrogating me? Sure. I want to start with a particular piece and just let the picture emerge. <laughs> why, don't you, why don't you say something about what, what you're doing overall, okay. and, uh, and then maybe we can focus in on some elements. Okay, so here's my motivation, Crispin. 
I'm tired of crazy philosophy. And <laughs> one so, man's craziness is another man's common sense. I know. know. Well, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. And look, you know, this is a highly opinionated what I'm doing, right? I mean, and you know, I don't have the pretense that simply because I'm doing technical analytical philosophy that it has some real object, that it's really sort of has some objectivity, that it's not biased, right? I, I, it is, it is, right? I'm, there's a set of positions that I take to be positions I don't want to have to deal with. Yeah. And so I'm going to, this is going to tell you how to avoid them, right? Now, you can decide if you like those, if those positions are great with you, you're not going to find this compelling at all, right? Some of them really are crazy, though, I think. But I would say that the positions do, a lot of them do inv- have some pretty difficult baggage that they carry around. And so, so what are some of the positions I'm talking about? Panpsychism, right? So the idea that like muons are conscious, that's what I call, one, one I would call a crazy position. Um, the, uh, hard determinism, right? That nobody has any agency, I would call a crazy position. Um, 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 uh, eliminative materialism, the idea that there aren't any persons or that there aren't any, or that these are just illusions, right? Um, uh, Dennett says that they're just like desktop icons, uh, you know, whatever. I take that to be a crazy position. Um, just, so there's a number of positions that I, I want to sort of sprack and say, look, these are positions that we want to avoid. Um, and the reason we want to avoid them, I think, is it's not just that they're crazy. It's that they waste a lot of philosophical talent and time and resource, right? I mean, we spend a lot of time chasing around. It's a lot of tail, tail chasing is my view. Okay. Now, if you accept all of that, I'm going to offer a remedy. Uh-huh. And, so, and so I'm, 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 ex- I'm acknowledging that this is, this is highly prejudicial, right? I mean, it, it depends upon me characterizing views a certain way. But I do think that enough people in philosophy do find these views um, problematic, at least, if not crazy. Yeah. Would make the thing of interest, right? So, go ahead. You're kind of connecting a conceptual crisis or an intellectual crisis with a professional crisis, right? Like you're saying, this is one of the problems with the discipline of philosophy. Like it's driven into these uh, bizarre corners. Yeah, so I did say in the second installment, now look, normally if the, if we've been if you and I've been having this conversation forty years ago, I probably would have left that part out, right? Um, or fifty years ago. In other words, there was yeah. a time, even when I was still in philosophy, when doing wildly esoteric, counterintuitive stuff that doesn't matter to anybody other than us wasn't a problem, right? In terms of the institution, right? Yeah. But we're now at a time when the when the institution of philosophy is already in a lot of under a lot of duress. Coronavirus is going to make it worse, insofar as the the, the financial screws are just going to tighten even further. And between, on the one hand, the social justice lunatics, and on the other hand, the sort of the um, the esoteric weird stuff, this just isn't the sort of thing anybody's going to be willing to pay for. Wow. Right yeah. now, it seems to me. So it seems to me we'd better get tight and lean and serious and at least perceivably practicable mm-hmm. to survive in the institution, in my view. Okay. 
So, you know, that's what, listen, you know, again, and I, I'm not sure 50 years ago I would have been so, so atten- intensely yeah. going after some of these social justice activists. You know, if it was the 1960s, I mean, I would have disagreed with them just as much, but I wouldn't have been worried institutionally for right. the well-being of the discipline. Yeah. Because think- that kind of crazy was everywhere and people, it was part of the zeitgeist, right? Now it isn't. Right. Yeah, I, I think a similar crisis might have led to the, the foundation of analytic philosophy. And we talked about this in a yeah. too. You know what yeah. I mean? Like late 19th century, a similar situation where people are going like, what good is this Hegelian bullshit going to do for me? You know, like, I, like yeah. Yeah. Uh, this crazy thing where, you know, like decades of just ever more highfalutin metaphysical speculation or whatever. Uh, if we're going to exist in the academy, we're going to have to have like a subject matter that we have expertise on that is well defined and that, you know, um, and that, and that at least an or a lay person. Yeah. Could appreciate the value of pursuing, even if they don't want to pursue it themselves. Yeah. Right. Everybody can perceive the value of pursuing certain, you know, uh, mathematics, let's say, even if they don't want to do it themselves, right. They can see why you'd want to, right. I, I, what I'm worried about is philosophy getting to the point to where you can't, you can't answer that in the affirmative, right. Yeah. Um, 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 why should I care? And the answer is like, well, I don't know. You right. Know? I mean, what's going to happen is the only thing that's going to be left is applied ethics. Yeah. Okay. The rest you're going to be able to just kiss goodbye. And so I am worried institutionally, um, but I would be making these arguments regardless. And so, you know, I just, I did have that in, but, 40 years ago, I probably wouldn't have put that part in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and the social justice lunatics is a political problem that has to do with leadership in the institution and with stand, professional standards. I don't think that's primarily an intellectual problem. So, uh, okay. I, you know, that's, that, that's, I deal with in another way. Um, so let me just very, I, I can do this now in just another couple of minutes. Um, okay. So we got the crazy positions. We got at least what I'm calling the crazy positions. Um, and I want to talk about how we can avoid them, right? In that sense, the project is kind of Wittgensteinian. It's kind of a therapeutic, let's dissolve some problems that seem to be endless and not going anywhere and tying up a lot of people in knots. All right. Now, how do I do that? Well, what, what I basically say is that all of these crazy positions are the result of either paradoxes or dilemmas or problems that arise that seem to force us in these crazy directions. But what I want to say is that that only happens because we've already taken on board a number of assumptions that I think are false. Now, I also think that the apparatus of Wilfred Sellers' scientific and manifest image, which I did a dialogue with Massimo about, is going to provide the frame in which for me to make this case, right, to make this argument. And I do think it's going to entail that we take on board what I'm going to call a pluralist metaphysics, which means it can't be materialist, right? Because materialism is a monistic metaphysics. It says there's only one kind of thing, right? Yeah. Um, now, I guess I'm, I'm in that position, basically. I take that position. Right. I know you are. Right. Now, pluralistic, but here's the thing. Now, pluralistic metaphysics typically are what upset people. And what often lead people into these crazy positions, right? They're either trying to avoid the pluralist metaphysics or they're trying to rationalize it or accommodate it. And then you get weird entities and weird, you know, you get Platonism and stuff like that, right? So what I want to say is that sellers plus a few other things is going to help us to defang the metaphysics such that the pluralism won't bother us. 
Right. So would you end the so ontological say, pluralism? Right. right. So that's a, then the, the solution can go forward and we can all go back to what I'm calling normalcy, philosophical normalcy. And yes, I did pick that word on purpose, knowing that it evokes Warren. Is it Harding? Right. Normalcy. <laughs> yeah, I did that on purpose. I'm re- going to rehabilitate Hardingism in philosophy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought of you as the Warren Harding of philosophy. That's right. And I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to embrace that mantle. Yeah. Um, I'm going to grab that nettle and bring it on board. <laughs> Making love in the closet at the White House or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So that's the basic frame. Um, and, um, I know I expected you would not agree with it. It is at odds with what you do in entanglements. I do wonder though, I, whether I, some of our spirit is the same, but we just, our educations and histories and roads have been so different that we just doing are doing it differently, but I, I don't know how incommensurable we are. Um, yeah. It's a good question. I, I'm wondering about that too. So go ahead and maybe why don't you start? All right. Well, ask, what do you want to, all right. You did do the dialogue with uh, Massimo on, uh, on the scientific on and sellers. Yeah. Manifest image. Well, maybe we should go at it through that. I guess Sure, we could start there. Yeah. Um, and um, I suppose my thinking is that, this is basically about kind of puncturing the balloon of ontology in a certain way, or like uh, deflating the question, the the flat question, what there is like out, for example, externally to what we say there is or systems of description and so on. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, but the scientific and manifest image is, is a fascinating uh, distinction in you know, I guess he's, he, he maybe gets the basic, uh, idea from Eddington, right? The, uh, physicist who says like, the world as it appears to us is tables and chairs and people and cars. Uh, the world as it appears in fundamental physics is swarms of particles. Uh, you know, like you, I guess maybe this might even be Eddington's example. Uh, you know, you think a table is solid because you can put a cup down on it or whatever, but actually it's mostly empty space and, uh, you know, it's a swarm of atoms or whatever. So Eddington goes with this, I don't think it's developed very systematically science, you know, uh, philosophically, but, you know, he's saying like these, we have two incompatible images of the whole world. Uh, and I guess we just have to resign ourselves to that, that situation for Eddington. Right, but the you know Sellers' account is much more complex. Um, you know, so he it's not just the way the world appears; it's the way we experience the world with all our kind of critical faculties, including some of them that have been developed by science. Um, versus, yeah, the fundamental scientific description of what there is in reality, and then uh, Sellers' uh, question is how can we bring these things together so that we can have some kind of coherent single right. uh, system? And I, and I, so that I guess I gather your, the metaphysics you're going for is pluralistic in that sense. Yes. But there, the, what you just said, I, I would take it. It's not that he wants her to, that thinks that there needs to be a single system. There ain't, there cannot be a single right, system. Okay. There's going to be a single image as the result of the combination of the two images in the manner that he describes. The combination is very specific. That's where the word stereoscope comes in, right? If you think about it, what is how a stereoscope works, you look through one eye, 
you get one part of the image, you look through another eye, you get another part of the image, you look through both, you get a single image that in a sense, it's not even, I don't even know how to describe the relation. It's not a composite of the two images. It's more like looking through two transparencies, right? Almost, you know, the, the, the way maybe like with 3D glasses, right? Or something like that, right? I mean, it's more like that. And so the example you gave with the table, the editing example is great. So, because it allowed me to sort of in a very pithy way say what I think and then we can interrogate it, right? So I think both views are correct. I don't think I they're, and I don't think that they're incompatible or intention with each other. Okay. I think they're only intention with each other on a mistaken conception of the, ma- the manifest side. Right, um, 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 what I'm calling a, a hypostatization of the ontology of the manifest image. That's 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 the mis- that's the key mistake. Although there's others, conveying okay, so- causes and reasons. That's another 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 problem. Right. In other words, I'm going to say there's a whole bunch of mistakes we make that prevent us from taking on board the view I want to get, I want to offer, and that I think Sellers offers us of how to put these two images together without right. reducing one to the other. Right. Without eliminating one or the other. Right. Um, and without creating weird, spooky entities that we right. then have to come up with crazy views about. Right. And that's what's powerful about the seller's machinery. Right. That's that why it, I like it. <laughs> yeah. It kind of promises that like a non-reductive ontology or like a pluralistic, a pluralistic, ontology. non-problematic ontology where we get to have everything um, and lose nothing. I mean, that to me, I mean, you know, it's what you want. It's what you want in everything in life, right? Right? <laughs> you know, why? Why yeah. go for the small, right? <laughs> I want to lose everything that I ought to lose. I want. I want to lose everything in my ontology that doesn't. Yeah, actually but I, this is not something anybody ought to or wants to lose, right? Sure. I mean, um, definitely not. Um, so, so in other words, there are coffee cups and there are also lattices of atoms. They, 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 one does not reduce to the other. One is not eliminable in favor of the other. And both, um, in a sense, um, have the roles they play in the particular pictures that they play a part in. And those pictures both have a role to play in our overall conception of the world. Okay. So, I mean, I guess one question emerges from the, yeah, that's nice. Uh, and beautifully put actually. Uh, but okay. So the Eddington case that I just gave, I'm not sure what Eddington says. Actually, I'm trying to remember now. It but, doesn't um, matter that the table is a good one because yeah. that's very yeah. commonly invoked. Right. Right. Exactly. So somehow you got to do something other than the table is not solid and the table is solid. For example, like you can't end up, embracing both of those unless you get driven to some kind of relativism where you say that within the scientific language or way of life or something like that, the table is non-solid. Uh, but within our ordinary experience, it's solid. And those are both true. Uh, but they mean different things relativized to different conceptual schemes or something like that. Um, so I, I guess I'm worried even in Sellers' version I, I, I don't think you can't accuse sellers of just saying the table is not solid full stop. Uh, no, but, I don't think he would say that. No, but um, I am worried about clashes between these images or uh, ways they seem to be incompatible with one another. Yeah. But maybe you should expand a little bit on the, on sellers 
way of addressing the tension, which comes in terms of per, uh, persons, right? Yeah. See, so it's, it's a remarkable solution, a remarkable way to end this thing, right, with a move toward the existence of persons and stuff like this yeah. uh, in ontology. Sellers, Sellers says there's a clash, and I, I'm not sure. I, I, see, I don't think there is, right? I don't, I don't think if you understand it correctly that there's a clash. I agree. And, and you do. I do. You think there's a clash, right? I, I think there's not a clash. Oh, you don't think there's a clash? I, I think if there is a clash, then you have to choose. Okay? I think that if they actually contradict each other, if one of them asserts that the table is solid and one of them denies that, then you're rationally well, Yes, of course. Uh, yes, of course. Yes, of course. Yeah. No, no, no. You, so, uh, so, there, so in my opinion, like, there can't be a clash just in the sense that the universe is logically consistent. Yeah, no, no. I, no, I, I didn't mean that. What I meant was... I don't think the view entails that there's a clash. And so I think that him characterizing that way, way is a mistake. Um, and I should say that, you know, Sellers interpretation is such, is so fraught. I mean, you know this better than anyone because your, your mentor, Richard Rorty represents what I'm going to call the humanistic interpretation of Sellers, which to a great extent privileges the manifest image, the church lens who I'm sure Rorty talked about, right, are the eliminative materialists. They're, they represent the, the other side, the, the right wing, as it's called, of the uh, Solarzian interpreters. And what I want to say is that both of them are wrong. Um, that, that if you, wrong, wrong about their interpretation of sellers? Yes, that if, if yeah. you get sellers right, it's harmonious. Okay. Um, um, that in a sense, the scientific image and the manifest image, each contribute something that is required to have a complete picture of picture of a world that has people in it. Right. I do think that a world with people in it requires a fundamentally different kind of account than a world with no people in it. Now that is something that, you know, may be too much for you. That may stick in your throat. That may be too much for you. I can talk about why. And it's a lot to do with what Seller says in the last parts of the paper. That is, and it's because of the irreducibility and the ineliminability of intentionality. Right. Right. The fact that, you know, well, you know, I would just conclude from that, that, that in that case, science cannot describe the world. I mean, in other words, science, uh, there's, there, there's real, there are real phenomena that science is in principle incapable of addressing. I think that that's true, but the same is true for the manifest image. There are aspects of the world that the manifest image is not suited to. That's that's why you need them both. That's why you need a stereoscope, right? That in a sense, you know, let's get this sort of very, very fundamental about this. In a sense is a world with persons is by necessity going to be ontologically complex and thus is going to also be um, explanatorily complex and irreducibly so, meaning this also is going to involve a rejection of any notion of a unified explanation, right? You're not going to be able to have a unity of the sciences thesis. It's not going to be able to sort of have one picture that all everything, it's going to be necessarily fragmented. Now, I, I already thought that. Because I accept Fodor's critique of reductionism that he gives in special sciences. And if you remember that paper, in special sciences, Fodor basically says, look, um, um, the sciences are fundamentally and unavoidably um, um, a disunified, not unified, right? Okay. They, some, they, each have, they each have distinctive and non-reducible domains of explanation. 
right? Or ontological commitments? Or... Yeah, no, see, see, Fodor's going to be a... See, Fodor's a token physicalist, right? So he's going to say... Yeah. I think Fodor's ultimately a materialist, so I don't... I think ultimately he's, he's not going to be on board with me. But I am going to at least want to take from him... I'm going to accept the idea of fundamental explanatory disunity, right? Okay. Because I think that a world with people in it is fundamentally going to not only be ontologically complex, but is going to be, uh, is, is only going to be um, explainable in fragmentary terms. Now, you could talk about a whole picture in a sense by putting all the fragments together, but understand what you're doing. The only way that, that you know, that you can make sense of that is something like the stereoscope, right? Okay, I guess I, what I'm getting at. Yeah. I guess what worries me here is I'm feeling the leading edge of kind of a new dualism. Uh, and I'm also feeling that this is separating human beings from the order of nature in some kind of fundamental way. Why isn't it putting people in? It's insisting that no picture of the world without people in it is complete. Now that seems to me to be to be putting people into into the world. Not I'm not going to use the word nature because it's too restrictive and it's prejudicial. Yeah. Okay. How about just the world, right? Yeah. Okay. Um. um yeah. If the world includes people, which I think it obviously does. Yes. Um. Then I don't see how it can be either ontologically monistic or explanatorily unified. All right. I don't think uh, that seems to me to attribute really an extreme uniqueness to human beings. Like we create. Yeah, I do. I think, I think, I think language and intentionality are game changers. I do. We, we create a level of reality that's inexplicable uh, in, for example, physical terms. And yes. Stuff. All right. But I mean, look, but that, but to me, that to me is dualism. But it is. I mean, look, look, well, I'll, I'll handle the dualism charge. Look, yeah. Obviously, it's dual. It's at least dualism in one way because I, yeah. I stipulated that it's metaphysically Pluralism. pluralistic, right? Yeah. So, okay. But there's the other part of it, which is the defanging of that, right? Which is the the sort of the render the, the rendering of that as 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 not problematic, because I take a very deflationary account of what a metaphysical commitment is, right? Um um um, and so so. Yeah. Paired with this is going to be a sort of my version of Quine's theory of ontological commitment, which, as you properly said in our exchange privately, um, renders metaphysics essentially linguistic, right? And yes. I think that that's true. Um, 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 well, metaphysics, it doesn't make the world linguistic. It, it makes sure metaphysics linguistic. It sure sounds like that way. Metaphysics be, is the account of the barrier, world. To be is to be the value of a bound variable. Right, right. Okay. So I make things just by yapping, right? I create clouds by, uh, but they didn't exist until I bound them with my variables. Or the world, the world. Look, you're conflating the world with the account. Well, that's what because that's what Quine is doing. To be, to be is to be the value of a bound variable. He's conflating the world with his logical system, right? The problem is the problem is is that the alternative is worse, right? Um, the alternative is what I'm what is 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 going to be some kind of crazy metaphysics, right? Um, well, and so I look, look my my inclination is deflationary generally. Yeah. Right now, now if if you know that's also going to be a problem. I mean, if one is not inclined, because you know I'm also going to one of the things you're going to have a problem with is sort of truth. 
uh, on my account. And my account of cr- truth is deflationary too. And so yeah. um, um, I- I'm not denying that you have to accept a lot of things to, to take the road that I'm taking. I guess I just want to say there is a road that I think we can take that provides a pretty damn nice philosophy that is also quite consistent with common sense, which to me matters quite a lot. Um, um, I really do. It does matter to me that a view does not just a philosophical view. I don't expect a view in physics to correspond to common sense, but I agree with Stanley Rosen. So Stanley Rosen has this great book called metaphysics and ordinary language, which I highly recommend. Okay. And Stanley Rosen says, look, at the end of the day, there is simply no way for a philosophy not to, to be confronted by common sense, right? I mean, in a sense, in a sense, otherwise philosophy turns into poetry, right? I mean, it, it's not, it's unmoored, right? Um, 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 I feel yeah. the same way about ethics and everything. Anyway, um, I want to defang the ontology so that, that, that your, your dualism alarm um, gets shut off, right? Um, okay. And 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 so yeah. I'm gonna that that's that's where where other elements come into play. But let's just sort of stick with the sellers for a minute. I mean, here's the sense in which you know you said, well, that means that when, when once you get people, and I would say people in language, really, um, yeah, um, or people in representation. How about that? Okay, right, and that's his Rorty too. Is he got the language out of the, out of this, the role of language out of sellers really. Big. Yeah. Well, but look, Rorty, how could he not? Rorty was one of the main figures involved in the linguistic turn, right? Yeah. So he was going to, he was going, you know, th- that he later evolved into something of a continentalist and all of that. I think, I do think he started out pretty much on board with linguistic philosophy, right? I yeah. mean, I mean, I mean, really, oh, I don't know if he ever shed it completely. No. Um, um, um the role of language. I know that you don't like you don't love linguistic philosophy, and I understand that. I mean, and, and hopefully that'll come into. I love. I, I do. I like ordinary language philosophy in particular. Yeah. Uh, but I I don't think that we can do philosophy of language instead of doing ontology, for example. Right. So, like, uh, uh, when I ask what sorts of things there are in the universe, um, I want to. I take myself to be asking something other than. You know, what do my nouns refer to? Or, you know, uh, or what do we recognize as existing in our language or something? Or what are we committed to acknowledging exists in virtue of our sentences? Those are interesting questions. Okay. Right. But I'm trying to go straight for like, what is really. Yeah. You know, but look, we had this, we had this back and forth on several occasions is that you see a direct rude road to the world yes and i don't see how a being that fundamentally engages by way of representation has any direct road for the world even look i'm going to want to even say that even the scientific image ultimately is interpreted in terms of the manifest in other words a pure scientific image done by a non-person would just be statistics it wouldn't even have the con. It wouldn't have the contours, right? Yeah. Science is done entirely by a computer. Self-programming computers with no people involved would just be statistics. It yeah, wouldn't you be and physics. Massimo were good on that. You and Massimo were good on that. Yeah, I, like I mean, talking I, about like the way narratives are unavoidable or DNA. I, I, is the I mean, even the most hardcore physics is a narrative, right? Yeah. Um, and so I just don't see that direct road to the world that you think there is. And maybe we could at some other date explore more 
how you think that works, right? Because I do yeah. find that that's all through entanglements. It's why yeah. I never really completely understood what the knots meant. Um, right. Because I think you... I think that you're operating at a level that is actually just simply beyond me. I need, I need to have that explained. That needs to be worked out to me because I, I might be operating on a level that you think is nonsense, right? That's the thing. I didn't think it was nonsense. It was, I, I got too much of it to think that there was nonsense. It was nonsense. It was just, well, but you know what I mean? In other words, I'm doing metaphysics in a way that you want to deflate, right? You know, which is completely understandable because yeah. I mean, one thing is just even figuring out what the standards by which you would recognize a true from a false theory on, on these things. Like yeah. How can we test anything yeah. along these lines on, on fundamental ontologies, idealism versus materialism, say? You know, people throw up their hands because there's no empirical test by which you can show anything about that. Yeah. Um, now, okay, so let's talk about persons for a second, though. Yeah, persons okay. and the re- and the things they create, right? I mean, um, okay. So, so I w- I just want m- my view here. I don't I just, I want to bring out your view more, but I, I guess I'm com- feeling combative too. Um, I we're a species of animal. That's we arose on this planet. But you could you smell know, me right now. You'd absolutely know that that was true. <laughs> <laughs> that nice one. It, you can lose that on Zoom. You can lose your animality a little bit on Zoom. Do you remember John Waters' polyester? Yes. Where you would go to the theater and they actually gave you a scratch and sniff card? Smell-o-vision. Yeah. I saw it in Key West, man. With the Uh, cards? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Anyway, yeah, I remember it well. Can you imagine (laughs) doing this with odor they, they started out real sweet. Like the first one was flowers and then they got to farts and, you know, manure and, you know, garbage dump and ass sweat. It's just like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sex. But, um, anyway, go yeah. on. Yeah. I don't know where I was now. I'm completely lost. Right. Okay. So human beings, uh, I mean, we're animals, we're animals. Yeah. You were saying. Yeah. yeah. And so, and you know, it is true that we developed some, uh, distinctive capacities, you know, like uh, maybe consciousness is a distinctive capacity. I don't know. Uh, or we have more of it than uh, most other creatures somehow. Uh, or we have self-consciousness in a way that some creatures, other creatures don't or most other creatures don't. Um, and, but, so I, I want to think of human beings as a species of animal, sure. uh, of mammals, you know, as a great ape. Um, and uh, so it would surprise me if there was like sort of a, I don't know how to describe this on your view exactly. Not an ontological transcendence, but a transcendence of level where we almost entered a different world because now we're, you know, we have intentions, uh, you know, and, and we have values. We recognize the existence of persons. And these are things that don't exist in the scientific universe or something like that. Uh, so, I mean, I, I guess I want to resist that because I just want to, I want the whole thing to be one thing. Right. Well, but so I guess that's the, our basic difference. So is, let me ask you something. Is, are you primus, primarily concerned about a non-monistic world or are you concerned about a non-monistic explanation? I guess I want to say I'm concerned about a non-monistic world, but that's not 
you're going to resist that as a characterization of your position, right? Well, no. I mean, my world is non-monistic, right? I mean, it's it's. I mean, that's why it's called a pluralist metaphysics. I right. I just hear echoes in your voice sometimes of one concern and sometimes of the other. Like the very last part of what you just said sounded to me like what you were really concerned was about unified, about a unified science, right? The other, the earlier stuff sounded to me more like you were worried about the idea of a world, a, a, a fundamentally pluralistic world, right? Um, a world that's not ultimately just a single substrate or something like that, yeah. right? I mean, um, and that's, I do have answers on both of those accounts, whether okay. they would assuage you is a different is a separate matter, but I do address. I mean, that's what I'm mainly concerned to address are those kinds of concerns. And what I want to say is, don't worry, man. Um, <laughs> you see, the reason you're worried is because you're you're, you're, thinking, you're thinking of these things in a way that's that's mistake and and involves a bunch of category errors, right? Yeah, you're you're migrating concepts across the two images. And that's making problems for you in a way. Now, but let's address the thing about persons. I, I think we are going to get to all of this, not today, but in, 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 in all these. Let's think about the persons, though. Um, yeah. So the difference between the manifest and the scientific image, as Sellers describes it, and this part of it I would accept and I take on, you know, all together without amendation, is that the scientific image is a world without persons, <laughs> And the things that arise out of, out of, out of personhood. Why? Because the scientific image is an effort to provide a picture of the world from as non-perspective a perspective as is possible mm-hmm. to explain the world entirely in terms of quantifiable magnitudes okay. from a third person perspective. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, Unless you're going to call phenomenology as part of natural science, that just seems to me to be obviously true. Okay, physics okay. doesn't is not interested in how things appear. Physics is not interested in how things are represented by agents. Physics is not interested in the valuations or ends that people have. Physics is interested in showing, giving a picture of the world to the extent that one can, entirely in three three third person terms in terms of quantifiable attitudes that are describable in mathematics, right? That is what science ultimately tries to do. Now, you already have problems there. Massimo Piliucci would go on a soapbox that you cannot reduce biology to physics. Yeah. So Massimo is going to want to say the fucking scientific image is fragmented too. Yeah. And non-unified. Okay. Some people you know, are going to say, and Massimo said, I've read, Massimo has told me he's read papers. Now, this is going to be beyond my ability to read. But allegedly, there are papers that argue you can't even reduce chemistry to physics. Okay? Right, okay. Now, if that's the case, then the scientific, the picture I've given the scientific image is already too neat, but I'm willing to grant it. Okay? Now, yeah, yeah. the manifest image is the world as it is, including people, their points of view, their representations, their values, Yes. And all of that. Now, a complete picture of the world has to have both, right? Yes. Because, in, in other words, it, you know... It, it, oh, it can't have both. Huh? It can't have both. It can't have the both in the sense of one a, one image that denies the existence of persons. They can and have both it, in that... They can have both in that there's only one world. Yeah. Simply metaphysically complex. Yeah. And... 
you can get a single picture of it so long as you look through both images in the manner of looking through transparencies. So if I, if I confronted you with all That's the- not in itself incoherent. Uh, Otherwise, you'd have to say that, that a 3D movie is problematic because there's no movie because you have to look through two different panels, right? I don't see the – no, I, I think she is a great metaphor, right? Okay, so – but this is – Why is like, there not a problem with a 3D movie? There's just one movie. Right. But a complete picture of the movie requires both sides of the glasses to be looked through simultaneously. If you close one eye, close the other, you get an incomplete picture of the movie, right? Right, but there uh, is a problem with mo- a movie that does and does not have persons in it. Well, now, if that, you do that this, was, it has no green in it. If you do this, it does have green in it. That's not a problem. Okay, so... <laughs> is it? Or do you think the analogy is inapt? Well, I keep... I keep tr- well, it's a nice analogy. And I'm trying to work a way to uh, attack it, but I, I'm uh, a little stumped at the, mo- at the moment. But I'm going to keep pressing on whether these images contradict one another or yield contradictory claims if you accept them both. Yeah, so I don't think... Howard doesn't want us to accept them both in some sense, right? To a certain extent, what I want to say is that, and I'm using this word the way sort of Wittgenstein would, I don't mean this in the way that you'd get in a, you know, an introductory linguistics course. I would say the manifest image and the scientific image have different grammars. Okay. Um, but they have um, different ontologies. Yeah, but that that follows from there being different grammars, right? For Wittgenstein, right? Right. Okay. Right? For Wittgenstein, the ontology is going to be tied to the grammar, right? Um, because again, and you know, if the problem is going to keep coming back, maybe to, to this concept of ontology and what it is, right? Ontology is just a theory, man. It's not like you've just like bumped into the world, right? Ontology is a theory. Okay. Yeah, and I want I want one of them. And I, 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 not well, no, of there them. is one theory, but it is a theory that describes a world that has many parts, okay. pieces. I guess is what I'm saying. Yes, and and if the pieces, the here's why I don't think there's contradiction, um, um, Crispin. Let's just take one element from each. Okay, so, yeah. um, <clears throat> let's take something inoffensive. All right, so let's not let's get away from persons for a minute because that just gets everybody worked up. So let's let's do the example you and I were just discussing before we started recording. Um, I said that now that we've had several centuries of novelists and filmmakers, it is now true to say, "quote There are many coming of age stories." Unquote. Okay, that seems to me obviously true. I could list some of them, right? Right. Here's one breakfast club. Here's another one. Fast times at Ridgemont high. Here's another one. You know, whatever. Give me, you know, night Kipling's, uh, Starkey and company, Starkey and company, Starkey and company. Yeah. Which is your favorite? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I was going to catch her in the rye. There you go. Okay. Right. There are coming of age stories. Okay. Now, number one, um, they're not, that's, they're not material objects. Okay. Yeah, I guess I'm a materialist, so I'm going to try to do something with that. Okay, you, yeah, listen, you can you can say that. it, but then you have then then the, then then you owe then you owe you got to pay up, yeah. right? You're not. Uh, no. There's no reduction to story you're going to be able to give. No, 
you can you can you can flap your arms and sing supervenience, but I, I I'm gonna have an installment about why I think that's basically saying nothing. Yeah. Uh, um um, I'm gonna have a whole installment that's just gonna be. Can we please get rid of supervenience forever? Um, because it's it's just everybody's black box. Right? Yeah. It's 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 the laziest thing I could imagine, right? Um. Anyway, um um. No reduction, no supervenience. You can't eliminate one or the other. I mean, you okay. could say there are no coming of age stories, but it's false. And right. I could, I could prove I agree. it, right? I agree. Um, now, here's the thing. Unless you think of coming of age stories as things in right. a hypostatic sense, right? So what do I mean by hypostatic? Conce- so, so one of the things I say in the, in the third installment is that one of the basic mistakes I think philosophers make is they think of ontological commitment in terms of a single kind of object, right? So discrete objects in space and substrates, right? So we think when we ontologically commit, we're committing to that kind of stuff. And so when you say, well, there are, I'm ontologically committing to coming of age stories, you have two choices. You can either say, well, those things aren't that kind of stuff, and so they must not exist, so we'll be eliminativists. Or you say, well, those things are things in that sense, so they must be a weird kind of stuff, and then you get dualism, Platonism, and interaction problems up your ass. Right. Now, well, what I'll say is, that was a mistake to begin with. There's nothing hypost- intrinsically hypostatic about ontological commitment. All ontological commitment is is saying that there is something. So do you think that we're deluded, for example, by our grammar in this, in this case? Like you make coming of age, uh, story the subject of your sentence. I mean, Nietzsche thought this about ontology. I think like that the grammar somewhat does it because of the subject predicate, right? right. But right. I also yeah. think, I think, but I think more than that, I do think because of the way we perceive the world, we have an instinctive inclination to think in terms of discrete objects in space and substrates. If right, because, we interacted in the world, you know, electromagnetically, let's say, and everything was perceived as fields and stuff, we wouldn't we wouldn't think of ontology this way at all, right? I mean, this is a, a contingent fact based on how we happen to perceive, right? It's also the reason why we def we, we prejudicially see things as three dimensional, right? Even the scientists tell us that things are just space-time worms. That's not how we perceive them, right? And no, I'm being serious. In other words, yeah. I really think that once you drop this idea that to ontologically commit is to stay, there is some discrete object or some substrate and deflate it to simply what it is, which is there is this, right? Right. And what's the proof of it? Here's an itemized list, right? Yeah. And you just, so, so you I don't see the contradiction then with the scientific image. Yeah. Okay. It only clashes if we say they're weird stuff. Right. And so, yeah, that's good. So in other words, like you would do ontology kind of piecemeal. There are, you know, like there are coming of age stories. Now this might be a kind of not thing if we're going to resist. I mean, we, it's hard not to use this language, right? Like, but this is a kind of thing that I invented the word thingy. I said, they don't have, (laughs) they don't have thinginess. Yeah. Connote that discrete objects in space sense of thing, which I think is overwhelmingly how we think of it. Yes. And so philosophers, once you ontologically commit, there is an X, they're now thinking, okay, 
there must be some discrete object or substrate. And if there isn't one that's material, it must be non-material, mm-hmm. right? And what I want to say is that's a fallacious move yeah. based on a mistaken assumption about what there is an X means. And would that's you, why I go Quinean, and that's why I tend to be deflationary about it. Would you say, I mean, would you resist like a uh, claim like there are many sorts of things? I mean, but I, I, or thingies, uh, you know, in other words, like there are things that are sort of like coming of age stories, for example, other stories or. Yeah, of course. I mean, they're going to have identity. Anything that you ontologically commit to is going to have identity conditions, right? But yes. that's the inter- interesting thing. Notice things like coming of age stories are going to be individuated by their contents, not by their spatiotemporal representation yes. location. Right? Yes, that's true. And that's why when you ask me about persons, why, you know, I do think persons and representation, i.e. in language, once that's, in, once that's part of the world, the world now is no longer describable in terms of a single picture. And I actually think that's going to be temporal, right? There was a time when there were no persons and no representations, right? Yeah. And if God came along, there would be a scientific image and it would be entirely statistical and that would be it, right? Right. You mean God's image of the world would be entirely statistical or? Right. If God, it would be like uh, the God uh, computer. It would just be, right? It wouldn't have to be in a narrative. It wouldn't have to be in, it would just be a bunch of statistics, right? Once you add people, representation and language, there can't be a monistic a monistic world and there can't be a um a a unified system of explanation yeah i disagree i don't think we're that unique i don't think how we could be but i, but I, I just talked through this i mean that but that's a general scruple right. i give a specific example right talk right. to me about about um coming of age narratives don't give me a general platitude about how we're not special I don't care whether we're special or not. This is not, I'm, this is not stealth Christianity, right? Okay, I'm okay. not trying to convince you that we're you the sure? center of the universe. I'm just simply saying. I think you are. There are parking regulations. That's true. Okay. They're not physical objects. They exist. They're also not non-physical objects. They're not objects. They're parking regulations, right? They're individuated by their contents and by their roles, right? Yes, true. And... That means that the world includes not just rocks and stuff like that, but also things like parking regulations. And there's no clash between them because parking regulations are not funny stuff, right? All right. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Fair enough. Although, you know, I do – I actually try to say something like in entanglements about how something like a parking regulation or a coming-of-age story – can be part of the material universe exhaustively. Right. But I admit that I'm writing checks there too, though. But I don't know. Um, I, that, that was the part that I actually, frankly, this is a yeah. confession. I don't think I understood yeah. it properly. Yeah. Well, it's, it's um, not that I can pay off on this totally, man, but you know, so in other words, I'm going to look at all the copies of Catcher in the Rye. And I'm trying to figure out what Catcher in the Rye is. And I, and I'm committed to materialism. I'll take, first of all, all the inscriptions of the text. Uh, then I'll take maybe part of the processes in the mind of uh, Salinger. I'll take a whole bunch of the social situation, and I'm going to think of it in terms of uh, brain states and also... Right, but but, I, are you taking yeah. that as a gigantic disjunctive reduction of Catcher in the Rye? 
Uh, I, I would, in special sciences, that's what Fodor says you kind of would have to do, right? You'd yeah. have to say that what it is is a gigantic disjunction of physical states, right? The problem is that that disjunction, that set, that is that disjunction, yeah. is not itself a, a kind in any science, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, uh, right. I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not really trying to talk about reduction, but definitely not reduction to then physics. Then what is the relation you're imagining? I'm just, I'm trying to get things like Ketra and the Rye and parking regulations into the material universe fully. But, uh, I admit that I'm running into problems with that, especially these socially articulated entities. And that, that's, that would, that's what drives your, maybe. That to me is much more of a problem for materialism than mathematics. Or in other words, in other words, I've always thought that this is the rock in which materialism breaks. It's social reality, not not mathematical objects or things like that, which I think are much easier to deal with. Okay. Um, um, but let me ask you just about this, because it's interesting, um, about the catcher in the rye. Let's just, let's just bracket the problems with your description of the relation between yeah. catcher in the rye and these physical yes. pieces. Let's just bracket that. I have a, another question for you. Would that not then require you to say that Kat, that, that Catcher in the Rye and other novels are not individuated by their contents? In other words, isn't it going to fuck up your principle of individuation? It would seem that obviously what distinguishes one novel from another, they're distinguished by their content, right? They're individuated by their content. Well, they're also individuated by their physical instantiation, uh, which is connected to their content. But don't the Danto cases show that that can't be? Yes, that's true, right? Like right? I'm thinking about Pierre Menard's yeah. um, um, yeah. Don Quixote, right? Yes. They've got to be individuated by the kinds of, unless you're going to stipulate that those kinds of cases are not possible. Well, it, I mean, I, I'm, I haven't really tried to do this fully. I mean, I might, I might talk about causal chains, different causal chains leading, you know, to a copy of Don Quixote and a copy of Menard. Individuate them by causal histories? Uh, I think that's part of it, probably. Yeah. Uh, but, but I'd have to see that, not, that. That's how you'd have to go. I think, right. Yeah. I mean, that's how you'd have to, but, um, I think that, let, let me just say, like, I think that what you're saying is plausible. Okay. Like it's a lot more common sense the way you're treating parking regulations. That's than why I, that's part of what I find appealing. I, I, that's true. I just don't feel, I feel like a theoretical physics can be, and probably should be pretty damn far away from common sense. Oh yeah. Okay. I guess I don't think a philosophy should or can be. Um partly because I don't see how philosophies ultimately I don't see what the criteria of adequacy are for philosophies other than comportment with common sense. In other words, look, the the criteria of adequacy for a, a theoretical science is whether it makes the right predictions, right? Okay. That can't be what the criterion of adequacy for a philosophy is. What could the criterion of adequacy for a philosophy be other than some sort of intuitive or commonsensical um, um, uh, commensur- commensurability, right? Right. What but else I, could it be? I'm a little worried about this as a, a technique, though, too, because I, I mean, like for example, in epistemology, where I've been, you know, trying to argue for decades that knowledge is merely true belief, and I come up against these intuitions, okay, and, and everyone just intuits that that can't be right, and I kind of think that they got their intuitions in intro to philosophy. Okay, so like I sometimes I, I look at something that people claim has this intuitive status or this bottom line status. Sometimes I feel it completely 
you know, like the existence of this cup or parking regulations. But sometimes I feel like, nah, you know, you're playing with these intuitions. You're driving intuitions in different directions. You know, you're appealing to intuitions that I, maybe I don't share or, yeah. but what, I, I guess. What do you I, think? What else could, what, let's say I accept every, all the complexities and difficulties about intuitions that you recommend. But if I ask you, what could the conditions of adequacy for a philosophical account be? Yes. Given that it can't be something like predictions, it can't be something. In other words, it's not going to have the kind of conditions that you could ascribe to a theoretical science. What could it be other than some sort of comportment? Right. But I got to say also, and aren't all the best arguments against philosophical theories, ultimately invocations of competing intuitions. It seems to me that that's the case. Certainly in ethics, that's the case. Right. right, But I mean, I guess your intuitions have to be at stake to some extent. Too. Intuitions are visible, of course. Yeah. But and usually so like, by other intuitions, no? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a complex terrain, but yeah, I basically agree. Or I mean, like, I guess I would tend to say like not intuitions necessarily, but like bottom line features of experience that it's got to be compatible with or something like that. Um I personally, for me, the philosophy has to be compatible with my intuitions, I guess. But my intuitions are. Well, that's true of everyone, right? I mean, I mean, that it's asking too much of a person, right? To write a philosophy that's not compatible with their intuitions. I mean, you know, that's, um, but, 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 yeah, yeah, I guess I just don't see what else, what else could be the arbiter amongst competing philosophical things. I mean, look, you have things like internal coherence, right? And, yeah. and methodological, but those are going to wildly underdetermine. Well, you you're still going to have you're still going to have a lot of competing accounts, even after you filter that way. I mean, you could have other standards, right, of theory choice, like just in, even in philosophy, in terms of economy, or uh, you know, various aesthetic standards of theory choice, or you could have uh, you know some bottom line theoretical commitments that you have due to scientific claims or something like that, I guess. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. Than- it's interesting though, that you would accept those kinds of constraints, which are so highly a function of persons and their points of view, while at the same time trying to sort of, you know, defend this very hard nosed materialism. Uh, you know, I almost wonder whether you're interesting in the sense that I do think that there's some tension between on the one hand, you strike me as maybe the most supremely humanistic philosopher in one sense, given the, given the elements that you want to bring in to the work you do. I mean, you bring in stuff from the arts and from literature and from Eastern religions and all kinds of stuff. I mean, you're just, you're just a huge kitchen sink guy. And then on the other hand, in other words, you don't look or smell or act very much like a hard-nosed materialist. <laughs> For one thing, you're not nearly enough of a philistine, right? Appreciate <laughs> <laughs> it, man. And I just, I do think there's a little bit of a tension in. Yeah, I mean, do you not see a tension in bringing all those aesthetic values as as constraints upon the adequacy of an account and what is supposed to be overall a hard-nosed materialism? Oh, oh, well, I wasn't necessarily recommending all these things. Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) Actually, I think they're very problematic. But, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I, I feel the tension with my own material. My own commitment is to uh, a one plane. This is the opposite of you, man. A monism, a one plane ontology. Like, I want everything to be connected. Yeah. Why? 
for one thing, I want to feel myself to be part of the world. Like I want to fully, uh, I want to feel like anything in the world is accessible in some way from here. Like, not, or not in principle, eliminated from being learned about, studied, connected. I think anything is connectable to anything else. But I'm not, and, and so that's sort of what maybe the underlying, underlies the materialism. That seems to be a handy monistic ontology. But that but. sounds to me more like a, like a wish for explanatory unity than... yes. Yes. In other words, I'm wondering whether you really are a unif- unity of the sciences guy. That's the, that's your scruple. It's not that it's not so much the world that's the problem. It's the it's the account, right? You want one account, and I guess I don't know why you want. You know, is it just a kind of insecurity, or do you think that there's some fundamental problem? If the accounts, if a plural, if the plural accounts are not incommensurable, now I. Maybe I think you think they are, but I thought with I the case, at least with the case of the coming of age stories, I kind of showed how they don't have to be right yeah. if one doesn't yeah. hypostasize ontological commitment. Maybe we should devote a separate lecture to the thing about ontological commitment. It seems like that's going to be one of the rocks we're going to, yeah, yeah, keep bumping I, I would into. I love to talk about that. And maybe and, read, maybe maybe check out reread um, uh, Quine on what there is. I just maybe I we just, should just talk about that next time. Yeah, I, I did. I did that recent fascinating, obviously fundamental paper. Um, I, I would like to argue about persons too. Yeah, well, that's going to have to be, and I'm going to have to have probably a whole installment on persons. And so, yeah, um, because I think I don't think persons are the kind of thing that you and Massimo think we are. So you don't do do not think that there's that do you, do you not agree with sellers that intentionality and representation are fundamental? No elements of personhood. No, not really. I, I don't. I think okay, so. That think, we'll have to talk about that. Yeah, I think we're a little deluded about that about ourselves. We, you know, and I think reasons are causes if they're anything, kind of. Yeah, that's very dead. That's David. Look, that has been the view in philosophy since Davidson wrote Actions, Reasons, right. and Causes, and I think that almost entirely that is what gives you the free will problem, and. Um, I I'm not think sure it's, I believe in free will, and I think it's a, I think it's based on a on a on a right. And but again, I am bracketing right. To me, that's one of the crazy views, right? right. Um, if you don't have a problem with these views, nothing I'm saying is going to be very right. compelling. What I'm saying is only compelling if you find these problems problems, right? If you're happy with determinism, I am not going to be anything compelling about what I have to say about right. that. I so I just hope you can look at it somewhat dispassionately, critically. And say, okay, could I see how something like this might work if yes. I didn't have these scruples as opposed to those scruples? Because I actually think that that's really important. Um, um, I, I think that even if you want to say some reasons are causes, I, 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 I think I really do want to strongly suggest that some clearly can't be. And I, given that the relationship of reasons to actions is ultimately teleological, and I don't see how it's, how it could, that can be eliminated, right? Um, I do things for reasons, partly because you represent certain things as good, right? Um, 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 I don't see how that then gets transported into the scientific image in which explanations are have to be fundamentally non-teleological, right? Teleological, teleology can only be sort of a stance. It can't be fundamental to physical explanations, at least not in the modern scientific framework. So I just, I, I don't see how you either have to say that 
reasons and actions are not related teleologically, which I think I can easily disprove. Or you have to say that nature is teleological, which then brings you pre-scientific revolution, which I don't see how you can do. But maybe maybe we should spend a whole year. Uh, yeah, just on I'd that. love to. Because uh, I don't really think – I don't think we operate – Teleologically, in any sort of the really in the, in the sense that you're saying, so you know, I, we take ourselves to do. So if I go to the mall because I think there are girls there, and right. I want to meet some girls, right. that doesn't involve me representing meeting girls as a good. Uh, really? Yeah, it does. But I mean, it's first of all, it's driven by your sexual instincts. Uh, I'm, I'm not. I don't know. know. I have very rarefied views about girls in malls. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I. <laughs> Going back to when I was about twelve, I mean, you know, this was these were high concepts. I mean, I don't know what you're talking about. I think oftentimes we're quite determined to do things, determined by the world to do things, and we believe of ourselves that we're doing them for reasons. Like it's uh, a lot of post. You think they're post hoc rationalizations that that involve a kind of invention of a territory to, to ennoble them. Let's say. Yes. Okay, that's um, great. We, I think we should talk about that. Yeah, yeah I think I mean, we should talk about that. I, I don't know if I would try to get rid of the whole thing, but I do think that, that this is like a really idealized and sort of fictional picture of what how we operate as persons. Okay, I think that that's that's a good answer. I mean, that's the best way I think to come back at something like I'm gonna like I would want to. Of course, again, it will involve a pretty deep abandonment of common sense, and. So there may be this methodological thing that we're going to run into that we'll just disagree on, right, about the role yeah, yeah. of common sense. But I like that. I like that move as a reply, and it's meaty. It's something you can really kind of yeah. – you probably want to tie it into an evolutionary story, right, also? Well, possibly, and also a first-person story. Uh, and, okay, and that's – yeah. Yeah, really and that. and, yeah, and one thing would be like the experience of addiction mm. where, where I'm sitting there mm. going like, am I making – am I picking up that beer – because I want something good and I think this will help me get something good. Uh, mm. You know, people tell themselves stories like that for decades on end. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And actually they're being driven by, you know, yeah. pretty straight biochemical pro- processes and shit. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, and so I, I think I, I've had experiences like that, you know, where yeah. healing back retroactively, yeah. I realized that my decisions were quite caused, you know yeah. what I mean? Uh, uh, but of course, that's not exactly. That probably what also affects there's the reason why you don't have that, as much trouble with determinism because, yes. yeah, no, that's really interesting. And you know what? It goes back to Crispin, and this is we should stop at this because we're going along. But yeah, 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 this comes back to something that I really have just been saying a lot to people lately, and that is the, how much philosophies are expressions of the temperament of the person um, and their experience. In other words, this is, but this is another reason why. I take the view of philosophy that I do, Crispin. Yeah. Right? That's part of the reason why is because once we start yeah. talking, I start saying, wait a minute, this is just about the fact that Crispin and I are different people. Yeah. Yeah. And that's beautiful, but that it, it, it makes the claims. It scares true. you though. You oh, don't like yeah. that. Yeah. It scares you. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. On the one hand, you're the most emblematic of it because you just pointed out to me how much that experience of yours has has revealed to you this yes. thing. But to my mind, to a certain extent, that does sort of feed into what I'm saying about how we should think about philosophy, right? True. <laughs> and I agree with you on that. I mean, so, yeah. 
All right. Yeah. Well, I'm thank God for this because I actually forgot about the coronavirus for the last hour. Yeah, me too, man. Um, and um, I know this is going to sound cringy, but thank God for you, Crispin. Um, I really, yeah. this Good is, you. you know, I've almost ceased doing academic work because I dislike the environment. I dislike the players increasingly, and I dislike the, the institution and the way it works. Yeah. But I want to do rigorous work. And I think without you and Massimo and a few other people, I don't know what I would do, honestly. I need to bounce these things off of people. We we need you to keep working too, man. I really so, think it's just the prolegomena are going interesting directions, man. I appreciate so, and it. I'm, I'm, I don't know. Once they're done, I'm going to have to decide what to do about it. Um, I'm going to want to publish it in some form. I don't think I want to publish it academically, but I also don't want to just publish it on my website. Yeah. I'm going to have to think about what to do about it. Maybe now that I have access to a trade publisher, I can put it in a more digestible language and publish it sort of like my last, this book I just did was published. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but we'll have to see. Anyway, Crispin, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Peace. stay healthy. Stay well. You too. I don't pray, but figuratively I'm praying that your school is able to weather this. And, and your have, parents. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and that you have a relatively normal semester coming up in the fall, as I think we all hope for. Yeah. All right, my friend. Take care. See you, Dan. All right, I'll see you soon. Bye-bye.